pleasure to be exhorted by our brother Jim Washick. Brother Jim does not have a reading. His subject is the resurrection. We'll ask Brother Jim to come up. brothers and sisters and friends. I think perhaps I'm the only one in the room wearing a tie tonight. <laughs> I, had a, I had a sister uh, uh, remind me to be sure to speak up. So if at any point I, I fail to do that, someone please just feel free to stand up and wave their arms and I will get the message. My topic tonight is resurrection. And of course, that's a very broad topic. But the resurrection is the first principle of the truth. It is intrinsic to the hope of the gospel. And yet, it's a source of contention and confusion both without and within the household. And this confusion is most obvious within popular Christianity, as we all know. But as we know from past events, it's a very timely subject for us too. The scriptures are literally full of information on the resurrection. And yet we find it's neglected, it's misunderstood, it's even denied by so-called Christianity. The Sadducees denied the resurrection in Christ's day and so it is today. And even those that don't necessarily deny the resurrection they maintain such vague and such confused notions because it just doesn't fit with the popular traditions of immortal souls and going to heaven. But how about us? The question is, how general is our knowledge? And can we give account for what we believe? Are we familiar with the events that are soon going to transpire? Can we declare it? Can we defend it and can we watch for it with confidence? Because as fundamental as this subject is, one must wonder why is it such a source of confusion? Why is it such a source of contention even within the household? And surprisingly, it is a difficult subject because it's a very complex subject. Because the resurrection impacts on so many other principles of faith. I believe that the volume of scripture available on the resurrection demonstrates the intention that the servants of God would know and would understand this very important subject. Christ, you recall, corrected the Sadducees. He said that they erred not knowing the scriptures. And how often you know, how often have we wished that the truth was spelled out, that we had, we had a statement of faith, and the truth was, was uh, spelled out that way, so we could turn, turn to the scripture, and we could look up the topic, and we could have it all proclaimed right there in black and white for us. Well, God chose not to do it that way. Proverbs says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, and it is the honor of kings to search it out. And like any part of God's Word, 
Understanding comes only with an earnest contention, rightly dividing those precious words of truth. And especially today, you know, we are blessed with translations, concordances, dictionaries, the writings of the pioneer brethren. And it's not necessarily easier, but I think our excuses are just uh, exposed. We have no excuse for not searching it out. Do we really think on any principle that we can gain understanding without some effort on our part? Or rather than dig it out, can we just read what one of the pioneers had to say about it? Or can we listen to a, a, a brother talk about it or someone who has written a pamphlet? Well, that's a good start, but our efforts are still needed. Because the scriptures are written in such a way that they are revealed to those who search. And we cannot get around that design just by having someone talk to us uh, about it. It takes effort on our part. You know, how often, how often have you read some of the works of John Thomas or Thomas Williams, any of the pioneers? How often have you heard a lecture that you thought was really, really good? And it goes in one ear and out the other. Because I remember reading some of the, reading some of the pioneer works when I was first uh, introduced to them. Not that I even necessarily understood the depth that was there, but I didn't remember what I had read. How often have you gone home from a Bible school and somebody asks you, well, how was the Bible school? And you say, oh, it was, it was good. Brother so-and-so and brother so-and-so and somebody else give really good talks. And then they ask you, well, what were the talks about? And for the life of you, you cannot remember what their talks were about, but they were good. I grew up in the truth. I've heard many lecturers, listened to many learned speakers, explaining the mystery of the scriptures, and I was always interested in the, uh, in the book of Revelation. And it was very interesting that I really didn't understand what was going on, and I could not remember it when I tried to, uh, tried to recall. So if someone would ask me, well, well, what do you believe? Usually I could say, as a young man, I could say, well, we believe this, and we believe that. I could tell them basically what the Christadelphians believed. But it's not until you search out a subject for yourself, until you look it up yourself, until you explore it yourself and make it your own, that you can truly say, this is what I believe. And not only is this what I believe, but I'm glad you asked because I've been really anxious to tell somebody about it. So what I hope to do tonight is just to offer some thoughts and some guidelines on some of the elements of the topic of uh, resurrection, which may spark some interest uh, maybe in our search for as complete of an understanding as we can have. In the preface of Anastasis, John Thomas poses a question that I think should intrigue us all. And this is what he says. He says, but some may be prompted to inquire is it necessary to understand all the details of the resurrection and judgment in order to possess the faith which justifies? In reply, I would say, if it were necessary, there would scarcely be found in this generation the corporal's guard of justified believers. I, I apprehend that if a person heartily believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust, 
and that both these classes will appear in the presence of the righteous judge to give account of themselves to him, their understanding so far is sound upon these two first principles. But if on the contrary, he deny the resurrection of the unjust, and repudiate the citation of the righteous to judgment, saying that there is no other judgment for them other than what they are subjected to in the present state, and that, and that they will not be called upon to give account, I can only say for myself that I had rather never had been born than appear in the divine presence with such a tradition. So what brother, what the brother is saying here, he says, every saint is not going to know or understand all, all aspects of uh, the resurrection. However there, are, however, there are certain basic elements. Number one, that both the just and the unjust in Christ shall be raised and shall give account. And further, he defines as tradition and as error that the fact or the, the belief that only the just shall be raised and are the just shall not have to give account before Christ. Now with those comments in mind, let's review some of the aspects and principles of uh, resurrection. And if we were talking to someone who didn't know anything about resurrection, we would first need to establish some type of a foundation, a groundwork upon which to base our review. And I would think that the basic question that's going to be asked is who is going to be resurrected. Now, as you know, some of Christianity have in the past professed to believe in a universal resurrection. And I think there's still this kind of a nebulous idea out there within popular Christianity that somehow, in addition to being in heaven, that somehow there is going to be a resurrection and somehow everyone will appear before a righteous judge and will have to give account. And advocates readily point to such scriptures as John 5:28, where it says, All that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And there's other verses which appear on the surface to imply a universal calling. But on the other hand, you can go to other verses which imply a very selective calling. And therefore, in Daniel 12:2, it says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. In Jeremiah 51:57, They shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake. And in Isaiah 26:14, They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. And in one case, we're told, Even the very memory of them perishes. So more profitable than selecting individual verses and trying to prove a theme is to understand the theme and the intent of the gospel. And in categorizing man, we're given two broad classes, in Adam and in Christ. And we know that in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15, and in Christ shall all be made alive. And it is a very consistent theme throughout the scripture. It's very thoroughly dealt with in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians and in the 6th chapter of Romans. I want to look at that 6th chapter of Romans. And I want to rearrange some of the verses. Now trust me, I am not trying to improve upon the 6th chapter of Romans. But what I'm trying to do is to put some of those verses, in fact, this is, not, this is not my work, but this is something that I have taken out of uh, someone else's work, is rearrange some of those verses to show a clarity 
of what I think and I think what we think is being said because Romans 6 tells us in verse 10 that Christ died unto sin he died unto sin now what does that mean? Diglot says for the death which he died he died by sin once but the life which he lives he lives by God it references what Paul states in Hebrews 9.27 as it is appointed unto men once to die but after this the judgment Christ was a man Christ was born under the law he was born under the dominion of death and as the descendant of Adam he inherited the death sentence that passed upon all men but he overcame and as we know according to a plan that was determined by God even though he died death could not hold him So, Romans 6.10 says that Christ died unto sin, as was appointed. He died. And then in verse 3 we're told, And many were baptized unto his death. And they also, in verse 2, are dead to sin. And then we're told, in other words, they're dead to sin. They're dead from the hold of sin from the hold of the pit or of the grave. And we're told in verse 7 that Christ, by his death, he was freed or justified from sin. And then you have to go to the fifth chapter, the ninth verse, we find that all who have died with him are also justified or freed by his blood. And this culminates in the 8th verse in the, in the 6th chapter. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Now, what, in rearranging it this way, what we're trying to show is a sequence. We're trying to show a process. Note the conditions of being Christ. Note how we become Christ. And by the shedding of his righteous blood... Christ declared, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Because through his blood he confirmed the covenant. He manifested the promise, which was the covenant, that those in him shall live. And this is what we refer to as the blood of the everlasting covenant, as referenced in Hebrews, Hebrews 13.20. This is the process of being dead unto sin, and released from the hold of the grave. This is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which we're told has made us free from the law of sin and death. In Adam, in Christ. Death, resurrection, and hope of a life. Now Zechariah had earlier prophesied, by the blood of thy covenant... I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit. What's the implications if there's no blood? No release from the pit. The covenant is the same that was made with Abraham. And we declare this truth every time we partake of the emblem of the wine Christ himself declared in Matthew 28, 28, and I have the uh, diaglot uh, rendering. He says, Drink all of you out of it, for this is my blood of the covenant that which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. 
So if Christ was justified or freed from the hold of the grave by his sacrificial death, we know that his sheep are likewise freed from that condemnation as well as from their own individual sins by being planted in the likeness of their shepherd's death. And thus they are referred to as the redeemed, the purchased, those who are bought with a price, and they are the ones who will be raised up at the last day to give account. Now it seems like the next question that might be asked would be, well, only these? Are these the only ones who are going to be raised up to give account? Some may argue. Romans 6, does it disprove that others will come forth, or does it even disprove a universal resurrection? It states that only those thus related to Christ shall live with him. But it does not prohibit the resurrection of some or even all others to be brought before the judge. And indeed, it does not address that. That only those related to Christ and not all men are to be raised through the covenant for judgment is demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 18. You recall that in this particular instance, this is addressed to brethren. Brethren who did not believe in the resurrection. And Paul starts, he says, How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? I'm sorry it doesn't all show on there, but I think you, you can follow it. He says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ be not risen, our preaching and our faith is in vain. In verse 15, we are false witnesses. In verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Underline that word perished. And then he reminds us, for in Adam all die, even so in Christ. In Christ shall all be made alive. What he's saying is that if this is a hoax, if Christ is not risen, ye are yet in your sins. In other words, you are not justified. You are not freed from the hold of the grave, from what from death's claim on you. You remain like all those others who are not justified and freed, and you are perished. But therefore, no. Uh, basically, it would present all those asleep in Christ as perished as opposed to asleep in hope of the resurrection. And he summarizes it in verse 22 and 23. As an Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Now, the word resurrection... is from the Greek anastasis. And anastasis means a standing or a rising up. Now Young's Concordance shows anastasis occurring 40 times in the New Testament 
and it's rendered resurrection 39 times. And although the word resurrection is not found in the Old Testament, the concept is certainly taught in the Old Testament through the words to raise, to rise up, to rise again. And Paul in Acts 24.15 says that his hope was unchanged from that given in the law and the testimony. Now obviously the law and the testimony is the Old Testament. It was that which was given to Israel. And that Paul's hope was unchanged from what they had much earlier received. And he says that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And recall Christ in correcting the Sadducees in Luke 20, he declared, he said, even Moses showed that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live unto him. So Moses taught resurrection. And you know that's an important emphasis on the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And some of you young folks may recall that quite often in our in our public prayers, you will hear us address God as the, uh, the God, the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because it addresses that he is indeed the God of the living. And that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in covenant relationship with him, and therefore they are not dead. They are asleep in hope. And in that respect, he is the God of the living, for they are alive unto him. You recall when Jesus told Martha that Lazarus would rise again, what did Martha say? She says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It was common knowledge. Even though the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, Israel knew of the resurrection. And Israel knew that salvation would come at a distant time through a regeneration to life. And then after this, there would be a judgment. Now granted, many of the details were not filled in in Old Testament times. They were not filled in until Christ came, but the plan itself was known. Job knew that he would face his deliverer, and we're all familiar with this verse, but my Bible offers an alternate rendering. Would you turn to Job 19:25 and 26? Job 19.25 For I know that my Redeemer liveth and, he, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And in my margin I have a rendering after I shall awake, though this body be destroyed, yet out of my flesh shall I see God. Job knew and believed in the resurrection. So the hope of the gospel, the hope of the gospel is confirmed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that the day will soon come when those who are asleep in Christ, those that dwell in dust, as Isaiah puts it, shall awake. The believer's hope is God's promise of a resurrection. It is a hope after death. And the next question to arise is, what is the state of these regenerated ones? And that's some of the things that Dr. Thomas was uh, addressing in his uh, Anastasis quote. We recall his concern 
about those who believe that the just shall not have to give account. In other words, they would be raised immortal. And that's the problem of the immortal uh, emergence, that some would come out of the grave immortal. And he had a reason for that concern. Let me read you what he says out of Anastasis again. He says, My faith has not been stinted in its growth. Seventeen years ago, I believed that the dead are raised incorruptible and taught that truth in helpless Israel. But when I wrote that work, now styled by those who curse me a precious book, because they think it justifies their view and condemns mine, my attention had not been drawn to the subject in its details. We are 17 years nearer resurrection and judgment, nay more, we are on the verge of these awful and fearful events. It has therefore become necessary to study them in detail, that by adding knowledge to our faith and virtue, we, be, we may be neither sluggard nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the more one studies the subject and knows about it, the more lively his conception of it, and the more earnest and faithful his convictions. And that's what I was trying to say at the beginning. Until you study it, until you know it, until you make it your own. You can't have that strength of conviction that the doctor is talking about in this quote. Brother Thomas confesses his error here. He says that he used to believe in immortal emergence when he wrote Elpis Israel. But his faith had not been stinted. The more one studies a subject and knows about it, the more lively his conception, the more earnest and faithful his convictions. So don't let someone tell you that some of these subjects or that the resurrection is just too hard to understand. Don't let someone tell you that since the amended and the unamended do not agree on all these aspects of the resurrection, that somehow the truth about them are unclear or that they're hidden. They're not unclear and they're not hidden at all. Most Christadelphians on both sides understand exactly what the position and what the proof of the other side is. It's not unclear, it's just that one, one side is rejected. I wondered really whether it was needful to spend time discussing or exhorting that the dead are not raised up as immortal beings. I don't believe any Christadelphians believe in uh, immortal emergence. We do know of some other, for other groups who some apparently do profess uh, immortal emergence. You know, rather than the gift of eternal life being given to the just sometime after the resurrection and after the pronouncement. As a body, Christadelphians believe in this process that you are raised that you are judged that judgment consists of a dividing of the sheep and the, of the sheep and the goats if you will a, uh, a dividing a rendering some for reward some for condemnation but I decided it is worth time talking about immortal emergence for two reasons number one it's important to emphasize that resurrection is for the purpose of judgment Resurrection is not an end in itself. Resurrection is the means to the end. And secondly, it has a very serious impact on the faith versus works debates 
which we shall see very shortly, is a very related subject. Again, resurrection impacts upon almost everything that we believe. And I think what we're going to see is that the truth suffers more from subtle errors than from outright attacks. So first of all, perhaps the judgment and the subsequent pronouncement of life or death I think is more e- maybe that's more easily seen or explained in the parables of Christ. We have the parable of the virgins, all betrothed to the bridegroom. Five wise, five foolish. The five wise were faithful, they were ready, they were accepted. The five foolish also approached the bridegroom, but they were rejected. Even though they were his intended, they were rejected. In Matthew 22, we're told that the kingdom of heaven is likened to a king that made a marriage for his son. And those he originally invited declined the invitation. So the king bid his servants to go out into the highways to invite other guests, and indeed other guests were found. All were bid, some elected to attend. And we're told that both good and bad guests were gathered. But the king saw a guest who came who did not have on a wedding garment. There was somebody there who was, he was at the wedding. He got in. But he was not properly clothed with the required righteousness. And the king ordered that that invited guest to be bound and to be thrown into outer darkness. We have the sheep and the goats, separated for reward and condemnation, both clean animals, both judged, both called Christ Lord. Some received the reward of everlasting life and the goats everlasting punishment. The parable of the talents given to his servants whom he returned to reckon with. And countless other scriptures stating that we will have to give account. Indeed, that we will be judged by our very words. Now there's a seemingly troublesome verse which may throw some off and I think is very likely to be thrown at you for, ex- for explanation. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, if you turn to that, please. First Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. It says the same thing in the Diaglot. And it means just what it says. And is that a contradiction? Is it saying immortal emergence? I don't think so. Paul here is speaking of an end result. Earlier in the chapter, he speaks of being sown in corruption and raised in incorruption, of being sown in dishonor and raised in glory. Now the word here, raised, is not the Greek anastasis, a standing up, but it's, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, egerio, E-G-E-I-R-O. to raise up. At the standing up, at the anastasis, beings are caused to exist. At the raising up, as used here, beings are clothed with immortality. 
Now recall Christ after his resurrection or his standing up to life. When Mary saw him, remember what Jesus said to her? Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. And yet that evening, when he appeared unto the eleven, he invited them to handle him. He described himself as flesh and bone. So sometime between his appearance to Mary and later his appearance to the eleven, he had ascended to his father. Now I don't know that that literally means that he ascended to the abode of his father, but I know for sure what it does mean is that he underwent a change to take upon himself his father's nature. That he was raised up, he was clothed with immortality. And that was an act separate from his regeneration to mortal life. The word raised, as used in verse 52, is also in some places used to describe the physical act of coming forth out of the grave. But here it addresses the process of the quickening, of the putting on of immortality. Look at it in context. Go back to the 51st verse. 1 Corinthians 15, start with verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Some of us aren't going to die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And again, brothers and sisters, I think the intent of these verses is to address the quickening to immortal nature. We who are alive, when our Lord returns, will not experience an anastasis or a standing up because we have not gone down into corruption. We are alive. But we shall, in the twinkling of an eye, be raised to immortality along with those who have undergone the anastasis or the rising up. I think these verses summarize the process and they're not intended to imply that the dead come out of the grave immortal because I think there's just too many other verses that indicate that that thought is contrary to the speaking and the purpose of the gospel. At this point, what I'd like to do is examine the role of faith and works and its impact upon the truth and its impact upon our doctrine of uh, resurrection. What are the consequences of believing that the just come out of the grave immortal? Think about that. What are the consequences of saying that I believe the dead are raised immortal? Necessarily, you would have to say that the unjust come out of the grave mortal. If the just come out of the grave immortal, they are either, number one, already judged, or number two, they do not require judgment. Now the second is the more popular with apostate Christianity. They outright refuse to subject themselves to accountability to scriptures that they do not believe in. 
and they prefer to consider themselves in Christ, covered by Him, therefore saved. And therefore they will ask you, are you saved? I want to read something from a little booklet entitled, Whom Can We Believe? This is a book that says it reviews new Christian beliefs. Really what it's reviewing are non-traditional Christian beliefs. And it looks at Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Herbert Armstrong and his Worldwide Church of God, Christian Science, Spiritualism, Witchcraft, and by golly, there's Christadelphians right there next to witchcraft. But listen to what they say because this is their criticism of us. And I think you'll be amazed at the accuracy uh, of how they depict this. It says, to this day, Christadelphians remain strongly opposed to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, considering it to be one of Christianity's corruptions. All this is closely tied up with the Christadelphian belief that man has no inherent immortality. When the animal man dies, Christadelphians believe, everything that there is of him perishes. His only hope for the future lies in resurrection. It is not surprising to find, in view of all this, that Christadelphianism provides its its adherents with no assurance of salvation. Even baptism, though regarded as indispensable to salvation, can do nothing more than make the Christadelphian a lawful candidate for that birth of the Spirit from the grave, which will finally constitute him a son of God, being of the children of the resurrection. His ultimate acceptance will depend upon the character he develops in this new relation. Certainly they will have nothing to do with any idea that Christ died instead of us or that he paid the price of our sin, although both are clearly taught in Scripture. In their view, God forgives us simply on the basis of his forbearance if we acknowledge his righteousness and turn to him in repentance and obedience. They quote quite heavily from uh, Robert Roberts. And they present us, I think, very well. Let me read what Billy Graham says. Everybody's familiar with Billy Graham. Somebody wrote to Billy Graham. He says, I know that I need God. I have always turned my back on Him, and now I feel it's probably too late. Billy Graham says that you sense your need for God is proof that it is not too late. If you had been the only person in the world who needed redemption from sin, Jesus Christ would still have been willing to go to the cross and die for your sins. You deserve to die for your sins, but Christ died in your place. Listen to God's promise. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What does that mean? It means that you are that you are willing to turn from your sins and confess them to God, and then you open your life by faith to Jesus Christ and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior, you can do this by a simple prayer of faith. Telling God your need of Him and asking Christ to be your Lord and Savior. If you take that step of faith, that simple step of faith, God has promised that you will be His child. How often have we heard, Christ died for you? And it's certainly a true statement, but what does it mean? It can have no meaning if the Word of God, the Gospel message, is not known and is not understood. These people believe that Christ died as a substitute for us. And therefore, they're saved. They have no conception of Christ being a representative of the race. They simplify it. 
And you have to ask them, if Christ died for you, then why must you still die? If your debt required death and it's been paid, why do we die? If the world was, seen, was deemed worthy of death and Christ took their place, why isn't he still dead? Maybe that death that we were deemed worthy of wasn't so final after all. And how about grace and forgiveness? It's like owing someone a debt and someone else comes along and pay it for you. Can the lender speak of having forgiven you your debt when somebody else has paid it in full? No. It's not that simple. Being able to state that Jesus died for the sins of the world does not imply that the person so speaking has any idea of what he's talking about. And if you don't know what it means when you say that Jesus died for the sins of the world, you're not feeding off the word and you are not worshiping in spirit and truth as is required. But back to the question. If the dead stand up immortal, they're either judged already or they don't require judgment. Now both sound pretty sad in the light of scriptural evidence, but as you've just seen, the justification by faith, people, has beguiled the world and I think in some cases has confused some within the household. And therefore you may hear, you may have participated in the argument of what saves us, faith or works. I've argued it. Which is the most important? And it usually ends up a yeah, but argument. It's a confusing, it's a confusing distinction. But the intent is quite clear and quite understandable. And Dr. Thomas offers a very wise observation on this subject that I think just clarifies it beyond any doubt. What he says, he says, Zealots in their frenzy do not perceive the difference between the justification of sinners and the justification of saints. Sinners are justified by faith in the obedience of faith, which is baptism while saints are justified by works in the presence of the righteous judge at his appearing and his kingdom. Let me read it one more time. Zealots in their frenzy do not perceive the difference between the justification of sinners and the justification of saints. Sinners are justified by faith in the obedience of faith, which is baptism, while saints are justified by works in the presence of the righteous judge at his appearing and his kingdom. What does this mean? Would you turn to Romans 3, please? Romans 3, verses 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God without or outside the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all of them that believe, for there is no difference. For all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? 
it is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Before we can go any farther, we need to know what justified means. In Romans 6, we found that we were justified, and the marginal rending is freed. We were justified from death or freed from death. Justified comes from the word, and again, I probably mispronounced it, tazdag, T-S-A-D-A-G. It means to make or declare right, to set right, to be righteous, to be cleansed. It is a judicial act whereby God declares the sinner absolved from the hold of sin and death, released from its penalty, and restored as righteous before him. And all this is a gift. It's not earned. It's not promised through obedience to the Mosaic law or any other law. It is based solely upon the sinless and obedient character of Jesus Christ and it's imputed to any of Adam's race who come into Christ by faith. Justification is a remission from punishment. We're no longer exposed to the penalty for he that is dead is freed from sin. Why? Because Christ was freed or justified from sin. It is a restoration to favor not merely an acquittal. It goes further. We're now regarded as personally righteous. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And that favor is imputed righteousness. Our salvation in Christ allows his righteousness to be given us. And therefore Paul says, I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God. And thus, again, we're viewed as sons. We're purchased with that price. But you can't stop there. You're out of Adam. You're into Christ. Now what? Are you saved? Do you not require judgment? Are you going to, if you die, you've got to come out of that grave immortal? Is there indeed no need for a judgment? And here again, it's not as simple as the world would have us believe. Turn to James 2. James 2, verses 14 through 24. What doth it profit, my brother, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seeing thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect or complete. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believeth God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. 
Now, is this a contradiction to what Paul says in Romans 3? Paul in Romans 3 says a man is justified by faith. Here we read that a man, that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. No, it's not a contradiction. Through faith, a way chosen by God as declaring his righteousness, naked sinners are covered. But as saints, clothed in righteousness, they must develop works which complete that faith. You're given the talent, you're supposed to do something with it. And the magnitude of God's grace is demonstrated in his free gift of justification through faith. We're told he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we, unable to repay, to correct or to compensate in any manner, might be reconciled to him. But we can't stop there because at that point our responsibility has just begun. And once in Christ we're under the law of the Spirit and we are to be doers and not hearers only. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So his quote is, Sinners are justified by faith in baptism. Saints are justified by works before the righteous judge. One final and practical point for tonight I think should be considered. And perhaps it should concern us that as the opponents, or as the proponents of the justification by faith alone theory state, Christadelphians have no assurance of salvation. We are to work out our salvation with trembling and fear. We are to suffer all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. We are servants, not judges. Paul says, I judge not myself. And when we appear before the judgment seat, it will probably be with an uncertain mind. You recall Daniel. In the 10th chapter of Daniel, he described the symbolic death, the rising, the strengthening that he underwent while seeing a vision of the multitudinous Christ. Where he tells us that his comeliness was turned into corruption. He retained no strength that he was in a deep sleep on his face, that a hand set him up on his knees and commanded him to stand. And although he was addressed as a man greatly beloved, he says, I stood trembling. And it was only after being touched twice more that he was strengthened. Brothers and sisters, I think we might well suppose that the just will tremble before the judge awaiting the strengthening joy of acceptance or the indescribable despair of rejection. But John tells us that we can have confidence. And this is something we need to examine ourselves for daily. This is where the self-examination through which we can correct ourselves comes in. Would you turn to 1 John chapter 2, please? First John 2, verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If we know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. 
And now 1 John 3, verses 19 through 21. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence before God. You should know your heart. You know, if you would dare to look, you know what your state of spiritualness is. When I think back to June 1967, when all of a sudden I thought Christ was coming, believe me, I knew on which, which of the virgins I was. When something happens, when you think about the return of Christ and the call to judgment, is it a sense of joy? Is it a sense of fear that maybe I'm not really ready? You know what your heart tells you. Do you have confidence or don't you? John tells us that if we dwell in love, we dwell in God, and therefore we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Can you imagine boldness in the day of judgment? It's not, a, it's not a guarantee. Our heart is deceitful and we can fool ourselves. But confidence and boldness, and you can count yourself blessed if those are the emotions that come to the forefront when you think about the judgment. And if those aren't the emotions that come to the forefront, then you can think yourself blessed because you have tonight and whatever time is left to start correcting that. In closing... Luke 17.10, Christ tells us that when we have done all those things which were commanded of you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. And it's the same principle that Christ gave to the Pharisees that invited him to eat on the Sabbath. He says, when you make a dinner, don't invite all of those who are in turn going to turn around and invite you to their dinner. Invite the poor. Invite those who cannot repay you. And why? He says, For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. That is our hope. That's the theme of this Bible school. Through the Spirit, John entreats us, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Thank you.